your moleskin journal, however you want to do it, that's, that's more, than, more than fine. Uh, but we just wanted to give you one more option. We're kind of experimenting with that in the month of December. Uh, one real quick announcement. On January 3rd, here's the thing. Okay, so we're going to go out of our Christmas break on our Wednesday night services, and then we're going to have one Wednesday where we meet together, and then one Wednesday where we're, we're in our week of prayer, and then we go back into classes. Rather than break that up, on January 3rd, we're going to have a, a movie night here in the sanctuary uh, with the youth and the kids. We're going to be watching a movie. Um, how many of you... How would you react if today, this morning, someone came in here, the police came in here, arrested me, arrested Wes and Patty, and hauled us off for six months? What would, the, what would we do as a church? You ever think about that? No. Well, some of the churches not that long ago had to deal with that sort of thing. And so we're going to watch this movie. It's called The Essential Church, and it's about some of the churches that fought back against that stuff. And it's, it's vital that we meet together. It's important that we're coming together. And there, even those who were following all the mandates and, and things, and uh, I think of James Coates in Canada who, who was arrested, I, th- I think, what, three, four times. And, uh, you know, at one point they were following one pastor. They were having a service in the middle of a field, sitting on haystacks, uh, and just separated and following every possible guideline. And the police blocked in the church, flew over with helicopters trying to find their pastor to arrest him. I mean, if you think that's over, wake up. And so I I couldn't think of a a better way to start 2024. Uh, I'm looking at at, uh, what's coming next for Faith Assembly and and our next steps, where we're heading and what we're doing. And we're going to be a church that's prepared. Amen? Amen. Whatever the world throws at us, that's, that's part of discipleship. That's part of the discipleship process, preparing Preparing us for what the world may have in store. We see Jesus preparing the disciples often in that way for whatever may come next. And, and I don't want to be a downer this morning, but we're not guaranteed safety. We're guaranteed suffering. And so as we look ahead, that's something I, I think will, will help plant seeds, I hope, to encourage us for the, time that, the, the times that are coming. So with that said, we're going to get into the message this morning, uh, now that we're all positive and happy and really excited, right? Uh, If you will, turn your Bible to Psalm 133. We are finishing our series, seven weeks in the psalm, seven psalms for the season. And I couldn't think of a better psalm to end with after we've looked at uh, songs of confession, songs of repentance, songs of salvation, songs of God being our fortress. This is a song of unity. In fact, this is uh, called, if you look in your Bible, the, the superscript there, it says, A Song of Ascents of David. These ascending psalms were not songs that started out really low, and as they would sing, they'd get higher and higher and higher and higher. It's not like that. Okay, that's not what a song of ascents was. The ascending psalms, or the better way to probably think of them is as pilgrimage songs. These are songs that the people of Israel would sing as they would gather together and ascend up Mount Zion as they would go to the capital city. As they would go into Jerusalem, they were ascending the the holiest hill in history and they would sing together. Uh, these ascending 
Psalms. And like I said, David authored four of them, Psalm 122, 124, 131, and this one. Ten of them remain anonymous. Now, we don't know why they are ordered the way that they are, but we think most people, most scholars, look at these ascending psalms, and we believe they were written in such a way that the people, as far off as they might be, they would sing them as they got closer and closer and closer. And Psalm 134, the next psalm, is to be sang right as they are entering the city of Jerusalem. And it is all about worship of Yahweh God himself. But our psalm today was the one they were singing right before that. As they were coming together, a united people under the banner of their God for feasts like Pentecost, Feast of Booths, Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why they would come together for these festivals and, and they would sing together. They would worship together. And, and this last psalm, right before it becomes just all about God, it's about unity. And so if you will, read with me. It's a very short psalm, probably the shortest in our series. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the good oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. So you read that very short psalm, the one thing we can piece together from all three of those verses is simply this, that if the church is God's people, the church are to be united. The people of God should be united. And God blesses the church that is united. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might want to write that down or underline that in your other notes. God blesses the church that is united. Now, there are some caveats to unity, believe it or not. There have to be some things we are, we are careful with when it comes to unity. After the last Wednesday pastor Q&A, somebody reached out to me, they messaged me, and they said, hey, Pastor Jeff, I didn't get into the Q&A, but I got a question for you. Okay, shoot, what is it? Because it's going to be January before they get an answer if they wait, right? So I said, okay, go ahead, we'll, we'll answer it. And, and they said, well, what are your personal thoughts on ecumenicism? Okay. Because that's, you know, something you talk about when you go down to Pizza Ranch, or have a daily devotional. That's something that comes up often, right? How many of you know what ecumenicism is? It's okay. I didn't know right off the top of my head. I had to Google it to make sure I knew what I was talking about when I answered it. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Some of you raised your hand. That's good. That's better than me. I had to think about it. And like I said, I had to, to Google it. Ecumenicism, or the ecumenical movement, by the way, is... Uh, it's a current movement in many mainline, mainline denominations where the religious leaders of various churches are coming together and they're trying to basically form a one world church, a one world faith. It's many compromises, many things. Uh, if you know who Rick Warren is, he is all about this. This is something Rick Warren is, it's his pet project. He's very into this sort of thing. Uh, we'll sometimes refer to Muslims as our brothers in Christ. No, they are not. Um, he's very friendly with uh, the popes and things like that. We have to be 
very aware of ecumenicism, actually. Now, it goes beyond, that goes beyond simply working together to share the gospel. I recently had some concerns about this very thing. I didn't call it ecumenicism in that conversation because, again, who uses this word? But uh, I met with one of the other pastors in town and I said, you know, as the ministerial association, I want us to work together. You know, I'm the president of the, of the ministerial association of Lisbon, by the way. And that's one thing that I've wrestled with is where do we draw a line in our theology? Where do we draw the line in our doctrine? And it's very tricky. And this is the conversation that I, I had with one of the other pastors. I said, what are we going to do when the Jehovah's Witnesses want to join up with the Ministerial Association? Because they do not believe in the eternity of Christ. They believe a, a lot of things different than we believe. What about, and by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses are in the area and meeting at the coffee shop. And won't talk to me, but that's a different story. Uh, what do we do when the Mormons want to join that? You know, what do we do? And so we decided we're going to have at least an agreement that we all believe in the eternal deity of Jesus Christ. That's kind of a key factor in the gospel. And some people might hear this and say, well, then what do we do if a mosque opens up in town, right? Or a Hindu temple? What are we... What exactly would we be willing as a ministerial association? What are we going to flex on and fudge the numbers on and things like that? So it comes back to that ecumenicism. Are we for it or are we against it? And I'll just say personally, I'm 100% against it because a one world church, I seem to remember reading in Revelation, that's not a good thing. And by the way, we had a one world church for about 1500 years. Didn't work out so good, did it? That's why we have the whole Reformation and things like that and, and all the Inquisitions and the Crusades. and Yeah, it didn't, wasn't necessarily a good thing. But can we work alongside other churches? Can we work alongside other ministers to share the truth of Christ? Absolutely we can. And it may get a little fudgy with some of them. That's, that's okay. But as long as we agree that the Bible is the only inspired word of God sufficient for salvation or the fact that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, well, we can work with that, can't we? In fact, I'm actually sitting down with uh, the, the Catholic priest uh, next week. We're having dinner together and talking about these things. And so I, I think it's important that we have those conversations and that we can say, hey, what can we work together on? But we have to also, like I said, we have to be prepared. What do we do when a church brings in a rainbow shawl-wearing pastor? Where do we go? How do we work with them? What do we do when the church down the street has their pastor declare himself to be a prophet and his border, his apostles? And you might laugh at that idea initially, but Joseph Smith did that. So we have to ask, where do we draw the line? And what have I said for some time now? Right here is our boundary line. Scripture is our boundary line. Every other church, at the end of the day, I hope you hear me on this, every other church can do what they want. They can call sin good, they can call good evil, but here we must be united in the Word of God and the Spirit that inspired it. And when we, at Faith Assembly of God, when we are a united church, we will be the church that God blesses. Now, the first thing we see in our text as we get into that this morning is unity is good. Very simple, right? In fact, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, I want to stop right in the first word, behold. The Hebrew word is henech. 
And it means to look and see or to observe. Typically, when we see this word in Scripture, it means, when it says behold, it means stop. Stop and look at this. Stop and watch. Stop and see what God is about to do. God says to Abraham, behold, I've, I'm sorry, to Adam, behold, I've given you every plant. In other words, stop, just look around where you're at, Adam, and look what I've given you. He says to Noah, behold, I'm going to destroy the wicked. He says to Abraham, behold, I establish my covenant with you. He says to Sarah, behold, you're going to have a son, and so on and so forth. And God's saying, stop and look around and watch what happens as the rest of this passage unfolds. We can observe the benefits of unity within the church easily, but we can also, in the same way, observe the problems that division brings within a church. In fact, many of us in our lifetime, I'm sure if we thought about it, we could think about times the opposite of unity happened and hurt and brought pain within a church. In Indiana, Jennifer and I had not been out of our youth position very long, and I was told about a one of the bigger churches in town. One Sunday morning, the worship leader was up on the front, and he's strumming along his guitar, and, and he stops, he says, hey, just want to let you guys know, next Sunday, those of you who are with me, we're going to go meet down at such and such place. And we're done here. And he took his guitar and he left. And the lead pastor is just sitting on the front row going, what just happened here? And so the next Sunday, the, about half the church goes with the worship leader. Splits the church right there, one service, just one, not even 30 seconds worth of dialogue. Splits the entire thing. And guess what? The whole thing originated. You want to know what the division that led to this was? There were some people who didn't like the color of the carpet that the pastor had put in the sanctuary. Splits the church. And within a few months, both churches completely dead. The lead pastor disgraced, resigned. This is one of the bigger churches in the city, by the way. The worship pastor, within a few months, has a moral failing. That church dies too because a house divided against itself cannot stand. A divided church is a dead church. But when a church is united, stop and watch as it thrives. Stop and observe how it grows. Stop and pay attention to the people as they, they leave. They're glad. They're filled with the joy of the Lord. They're encouraged. They've built one another up. They've received the word. They've worshiped. Behold, stop and observe how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How good. That's the Hebrew word tov. It means it's valuable. It's prosperous. It shows up again in verse 2, the type of oil that gets poured out. It's a good oil. When the church is united, it's a good thing. When the church is united, it's a valuable thing. And if it's both of those, what does that tell us? That it's probably a rare thing. Probably doesn't happen as often as it ought to. It's not easily found in abundance. You ever visit a church and within minutes you walk in and you hear people angry, complaining, unhappy, arguing. I was filling pulpits in my senior year of Bible college, and I was sent to this little little country church way out uh, west of Ellendale. And I walked in. New guy, don't know anybody, okay? I'm, I think I was 22, 23 years old at the time. I walk in, and there's these two older gentlemen, and I use that term gentlemen loosely, all but cussing each other out in the foyer. You're just yelling at each other. 
back and forth, back and forth. And this little lady comes up to me and just gently pats me on. I'll never forget it. Pats me on the arm. They just fight like brothers. Church, I want to tell you something this morning. Fighting with your brother is cute when you're a toddler. And it is immature when you're a teenager. But you ought to be embarrassed if it's happening when you're an adult. It's certainly not a good thing that ought to happen in the church of Christ. Oh, they fight like brothers. That sounds like we're just trying to sweep the sin under the rug, doesn't it? It's a good thing when the church is united. By the way, tov, that same Hebrew word is the word God uses in Genesis 1 as he creates. He sees that it is good. It can mean that it's suitable for its intended purpose. The church is meant to be a good thing. It is meant to be a united thing. Jesus himself said to his disciples, this is my commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. Now I've said this. I've been guilty of this. I love them. I just don't like them. You ever hear that? Yeah? You heard me say this just a few weeks ago. I love my family. I don't necessarily want to spend Thanksgiving with them. Right? There are times we have to love people and the only way we can be united with them is if we're at arm's length. Because people are people. But that does not mean we have to constantly put them down, pick a fight, gossip about them, undermine them, and so on. That's not easy because people get under our skin often, don't they? I used to say when I was a probation officer, this would be the best job in the world if it wasn't for all the criminals. But guess what? If it wasn't for the criminals, I wouldn't have had a job. Someone recently said something very similar to me. They said, you know... I really like being a pastor if it wasn't for all the people. And I said, hey, brother, we're called to those people. And you better love them. And you better shepherd them. It's a good thing to be united, even in spite of the things that irk us and annoy us. To choose to love one another in a brotherly love, an unconditional love, to show grace to one another in spite of each other's shortcomings. Because guess what? That's what Christ does for us. We love because he first loved us. And it's not just a good thing, it's a pleasant thing. The Hebrew word there is nahim. And it means it's lovely. It means it's a beautiful thing. I know, and I don't want to say this as a rebuke at all. Please, please understand me this morning when I say this. I know some of you like to sit towards the back, and that's okay. But last week, and even this morning, I want to tell you, you missed something beautiful. Because when you, when you sit in the front... You can hear the worship. And last week specifically, I, I was standing up here and I just stopped. I could hear the whole church worshiping. And I just began to tear up and, Lord, this is beautiful. This is, this is what it sounds like when the church is united. When we're worshiping together. I can't imagine just hearing the voices. I can't imagine how beautiful that is to the God who hears the hearts who hears the heart of worship behind it all. I think God looks on it and he says, that's pleasant to me. That's beautiful to me. We have to ask, who are these brothers that are dwelling together? Are they biological? Are they fraternal? Are they brothers in arms? Yes. To all of those, the words ahem 
And it means fellow tribesmen or blood brothers. It could literally be taken to mean they are those who are on the same side of a battle. And the word dwell means to sit together. Hmm. Let's pause for a second and look around the room. Hmm. I'd say we're in a spiritual battle. And aside from myself, because I'm preaching, we're all sitting together. Right? We're dwelling together. We're coming together. When the church comes together, what well, it follows, we should be united. That we're dwelling together. And therefore, we should love one another as we meet and are in agreement with one another. Or we share similar doctrines and interpretive agreements. You understand that for the church, it is vital. For the church to be united, it is vital that we agree in what is taught and what is preached. Paul understood this when he was writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was struggling with this very thing. I follow Paul, one group would say. Well, I follow Peter, said another group. And Well, I, I like this guy I saw on YouTube named Apollos. He's got such quality videos, right? That's not exactly what it says. That's the Jeff Williams translation coming out next year. I always postpone it one more year. but And then there were the more smug, self-righteous among the group. Well, I follow Jesus. <laughs> right? Paul says, knock it off. He says, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. That you all agree. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Martin Luther said it like this, Cursed be that unity for which the word of God has put at stake. Another pastor I, I listened to recently, he said, Unity at the cost of truth is the devil's favorite tool in a church. If it's your goal to teach something else in opposition to your church, in opposition to your pastor, in our case, if it's in opposition to the doctrines of the assemblies of God, you are not spreading truth, you are spreading division. There are pastors who do this very thing. They say, well, that's their position, it's not the fundamental truths. And this is very frustrating because when I call this out, I'm called the one being divisive sometimes. So if you will, permit me to air out a little frustration this morning. If it's only their positions, well then okay, it's only their position that women can be pastors. Could you imagine if I were to stand up and preach against that in an Assembly of God church? I wouldn't get a call just from Bismarck. I'd be getting a call from Springfield, right? We're going to need those credentials back, Jeff. It's only their position that racism is bad. It's only their position that transgenderism is unbiblical or drug use or alcoholism is impermissible. So why don't they oppose those if it's only their position? By the way, our position papers are written to flesh out what we actually believe in our doctrine. They're not just some extra thing. We should understand them and read them and stand by them. It's not enough to be united on paper. We must also be united in practice. And if you can't serve without causing divisions, if you can't attend without causing divisions, if you can't encourage, build up, church, I'm going to say this one time and one time only. 
If you like to spread division or if you find yourself doing it, you need to come and talk to me because maybe, maybe we need to find a better church suited to your liking. But I have news for you. You're going to be very miserable there too. Proverbs tells us it is a glory for a man to cease quarreling, but any ignorant fool will break out in dispute. It is better to be united where we are as a church, here in a united church, because a united church is a blessed church. Secondly, unity is an anointed thing. It's, it's anointed. Verse 2 says, It is like the good oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Unity is the good oil or the precious oil in some translations. Again, it's the Hebrew word tov. This doesn't mean it's a motor oil, by the way, or a cooking oil or something like that. He says it's a tov oil, a precious oil. It's not a grease or a salve. It's, it's an anointing oil used to pour upon someone's head in the Old Testament as they would anoint a priest. This is actually pointing us back to Exodus 29 when Moses was to anoint his brother Aaron as priest over the people. But the first thing he does before he pours the oil, I want you to catch this this morning. God says this, bring Aaron and his sons near the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. We see Jesus do the exact same thing to the apostles as he's commissioning them for ministry and as he's teaching them about servanthood. John 13. In fact, the, the manner in which he washes the disciples' feet. He wraps a towel around his waist. There's water in the wa- wa- uh, wash basin. This is the manner in which Moses washed the feet of Aaron and washed the hands of Aaron and his sons. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses, and yet he makes the time to wash the feet of his disciples as he's commissioning them to ministry. Now on that note, isn't it interesting that as Jesus is preparing to do this, Luke tells us in the same time frame, the same period, there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. You see, in Luke's gospel, Jesus scolds them and teaches them. He tells them, serve one another. But John concludes that story and he says, Jesus isn't just going to tell you. He's going to show you what humility looks like because not even a Hebrew slave was permitted to wash a, a person's nasty feet. But Jesus puts the towel around his own self and he gets on his hands and knees and he says, this is what servanthood looks like. This is what humility looks like. And after washing them, He commissions them and he anoints them for ministry. And the same goes for Moses. Moses would then dress his brother. He would put them in the priestly garments. And then he would anoint him with the oil. And the point is, I think what the psalmist is is laying out for us here when we unpack this, is that we cannot be united unless we are willing to wash one another's feet. Did you catch that? Everybody, no, no, pastor, no amen on that one. I might might have to wash somebody's feet, right? No, we cannot expect the anointing of the oil if we are not willing to wash one another's feet. If we're constantly picking and pointing fingers, if we're split over this issue or that issue or the color of the carpet or the light bulbs we use or whatever it is, we are robbing ourselves of the anointing that unity brings with it. 
The oil that runs down our head, this anointing oil, it runs down the beard, the, the edges of the robes. That's the, that's the collar, by the way, the priestly collar. And this oil would smell good. It was made from myrrh and cinnamon and fragrant cane and cassia and olive oil was its base. And, and it was not meant to use a, as a cologne or, or just something that smelled nice. It was set apart as holy. And it was only to be touched by things that were set apart as holy. Exodus 30, 32 says it was just not just to be poured out on anybody. It was used for a specific purpose. And in the same way, not just any group of people can be anointed. Not just any group of believers can be anointed. Not just any church can be anointed. It is only those who dwell together in unity who can expect such a thing. And keep in mind this imagery would definitely resonate with the pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem. This oil poured out upon Aaron's beard, his head, the high priest. It would resonate with them because... As it would flow out of his beard, it would drain upon the breastplate. They had certain stones, 12 stones that represented each and every one of the tribes of Israel. And they would come from various areas and yet this anointing oil would flow upon the nation is how they would understand this. Because those stones represented each and every one of them. And I want to do just one real quick sidestep for just a moment, but I want you to see something else that if we were there, we would have this common knowledge, but we, we've lost this over the years, I believe. We don't talk about this enough. Something the original audience would be very aware of. You see, specifically, that oil would run down Aaron's beard, and the first stone that it would touch and the last stone that it would touch were very important. The first stone in the priestly breastplate was called sardius. Sometimes in your Bibles it's translated ruby or odom. And it represents the firstborn of the sons of Israel, a man named Reuben. And the last stone would likely be dripping with oil, would represent Benjamin, Israel's last and youngest son. And that would be a stone of jasper, but it would be polished so much it would look like a diamond, a pure Diamond And these, these same stones are mentioned in Revelation 4 when John is given a glimpse of God's throne in heaven. Watch this. He says, He who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. You understand sardius represents Reuben. Jasper represents Benjamin. And the rainbow is a reminder of God's good faithfulness. Reuben, of course, his name means see a son. And Benjamin means the son of my right hand. You understand on the priest's garments, the first and the last stone point us to the Messiah. See, a son is born. The son who would bring salvation to his people. And the son who would ascend to the right hand of the father. You understand the anointing of unity within God's people and within the church. When brothers dwell together in unity, it is an anointed thing like the priest's breastplate where the oil would drip, but it is also meant to point us to our Messiah. A united church, if it is truly anointed, is a church that is drawing people to Jesus. And as the oil consecrated Aaron and his sons, the unity of the worshipers in Jerusalem 
would consecrate the whole nation of Israel under their God. And this flows into the New Testament. Peter writes in in 1 Peter 2, he says, Behold, you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And Peter is speaking these things to the church. And the church is a diverse group if there ever was one. Gentiles and Jews and people from all over the world united by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are united under the same high priest that Peter had, Jesus the Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews refers to him as. He's our high priest. He says, let us, not let me, not let I or my clique or my group of friends, let all of us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near in confidence to his throne. And as we, as a church, draw closer to Christ, we are inevitably going to draw closer to one another. We see this very thing happen in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Sounds like they're united to me. And what happens? They're anointed. They're blessed. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Who added to their number? The the programs? The outreaches? The fancy advertisement? I'm not saying those things are bad. We have to have those things. But who added to them? God. Because he blesses a united church. He blesses his people when they're together. And third, finally, unity is refreshing. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. Now I know some of you might be thinking that this dew from the mountain is mountain dew. It is not. That's my only dad joke. Please forgive me, that's my only dad joke this morning. But it is refreshing, all right? In fact, David mentions a very specific mountain, Mount Hermon. Well, they're going up to Jerusalem. They're going up the Temple Mount, Mount Zion. Why would he mention Hermon? Because Hermon was known as a place with a lot of precipitation. In fact, the waters of Hermon fed the Jordan River almost a majority of its its water. In fact, the word David uses doesn't just necessarily mean uh, a Dew. We think of dew as, well, the grass is wet this morning as I walk to my car. No, this is a mist. This is a light rain, which Hermon was known for. The flow of moisture here, it signifies God's giving of abundance and blessing to the unity of his church. It's not a unity that's man-made. It's a unity that comes from the Holy Spirit as he unites and he builds the church. In fact, when you look at what Peter... Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, he quotes from the prophet Joel, and he, he actually, a few verses before what, he, what he's preaching, he's talking about the pouring out of the Spirit, and just a few verses before, he's talking about rain. This is why we, we look at the Holy Spirit this way sometimes. We sing, Holy Spirit, rain down. You know, that song, I'm not going to butcher that song this morning. He already suffered through my dad joke. <clears throat> 
But Joel says this in, in chapter 2, verse 23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the early rain in righteousness, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and late rains, rains as before. This promise was for the restoration of Israel when they returned from the exile. But then five verses later in verse 28, it will be afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male slaves and female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit. The imagery David is using is similar. As the dew refreshes the mountain streams, the foliages, the trees, the wildlife, the Holy Spirit refreshes the church, no matter how diverse she may be. And I'll notice the dew of Hermon is falling on Zion. It's falling on Jerusalem, the place of worship, the capital city, the home of the temple where God's presence dwells. This theme is found throughout the Old Testament. Micah 5.7, for instance. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from Yahweh, like showers on vegetation which do not hope for man or wait for the sons of men. Micah 5, by the way, where that's written, is a chapter all about the Messiah. And when he comes, his people, the people of Christ, when they come together, when they worship together, when they're united together, it's like refreshing Drew, uh, dew on the dry ground like rain that's needed for crops and it brings health to the people. Paul says it this way in the New Testament and he writes to the Philippians, he says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Now here's the kicker. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. And there's the key to unity. Humility. We see it in the Messiah washing the feet. We see it in the church regarding one another as more important, loving one another, sharing with one another, preaching the same thing, teaching the same thing, working towards the same goal, because pride is taxing. Some of the most divisive people you will ever meet in the church are the most miserable people because they're the most prideful people. There's no place for that in the body of Christ. There's no place for competitions, trying to outdo one another, trying to overstep one another. In fact, there's the only time we're ever told to outdo one another. It's in Romans 12. Paul says you should outdo one another in showing honor. But humility is the key. And if humility is the key, Paul says love is the bond. Colossians 3.14, above all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Humility will help us become united. Love will keep us there. And if we're acting in true humility, we're loving one another, we'll be a refreshed, refreshed church, we'll be an anointed church, a good church, a blessed church, because we're that united church. This is what Christ wants for us, by the way. Unity was the prayer of Jesus in the garden. John 17 Jesus says, I'm not just praying for the apostles here. I'm praying for those who would believe in me through their word. And he says that they may all be one. 
even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, he's not just praying for the church then, he's praying for the church now. Unity was the prayer of Christ for his church. And you know what? It was also the prayer of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 15, he says, Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word, one accord, homothamadon, it means to be of the same passion or the same fierceness that we are passionately aligned with one another, united in our worship, united in the Word, united in our passion for the Savior, reaching out to the same lost people. Church, if we do that united, the world does not stand a chance because God blesses the united church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back this morning. I'll say it once more. A united church is a good church. It's, a, it's an anointed church. And most of all, it's a church that draws people to Jesus. It's refreshing to be a part of. It's a blessed church. But we cannot be united if we're not in the Word of God. Now, we may have disagreements. That's okay. It's all right to be critical sometimes, as long as we're not cynical all the time. You know, the Presbyterian church might be Calvinistic. The Methodists might be strict in their orders of service. The Baptists might roll their eyes when we speak in tongues. The Catholics and the Lutherans will just say they're wild cards this morning and leave it at that. But we can work with them to reach the lost as long as we can work with them to reach the lost. Amen? It's not a competition between churches and it's not a competition within the church. If one church grows and ours doesn't, as long as the gospel is being shared, we should praise God with them. A rising tide raises all ships. The Apostle Paul said this in his day. He said, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Because at least the gospel's being preached. If the truth of Christ is being spread... Let's work together. Let's do what we can. When it becomes about a political agenda or something irreconcilable, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But the same is true within the church. If it's something we can look past and love one another and support one another, let's do that. Let's be united. But we can't afford to pick and nag and belittle and nitpick and poke over things that are non-issues. And before we go this morning, we're going to do one more thing. One of the most uniting things a church can do is we're going to worship together. So will you stand as we sing together once more? Oh, come let us adore.